Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Welcome back to the second episode of our three-part series on Black Wednesday, that event in the September of 1992, 30 years ago, when Britain crashed, the pound crashed out of the currency system it was a part of, and and I think huge huge changes took place, both politically and economically. Yeah, I would think they are seismic, and the consequences resonate to this day. Yeah, so in episode one, we dealt with the run-up and why the UK got itself into such a unfortunate place, tied itself into the exchange rate mechanism at a high rate and made it central to its economic strategy. It was caught out by German reunification, which put German interest rates up. And as the ERM demanded that we follow interest rates set in Germany, we ended up deepening our recession. And lastly, you know, growing uncertainty about the European situation means currencies are increasingly subject to speculative attacks. And meanwhile, all the time, John Major is going around saying we will never devalue and he also won't raise interest rates. So the pound in the autumn of 1992 is sliding hideously towards its floor, which is 6% below the 295 central rate, which is about 277. In the last episode, we ended with the Bath meeting, which is where Norman Lamont hosts a load of European finance ministers. And essentially, they spend a lot of time talking about German interest rates, upset the German Bundesbank chairman, Helmut Schlesinger, by demanding he cuts rates and he blows a raspberry and leaves the meeting. Then, of course, the markets swing into action, having sharpened their knives And the first in line under the attack is not actually the pound, it's the Italian lira, which is the Italians are even bigger, I think, in an even bigger pickle than the UK. And the lira comes under huge pressure. Yes, it certainly did. (laughs) Well, because it was the weakest in the block, even even worse than Sterling. The first gazelle or whatever, the first (laughs) antelope in front of the leopard. (laughs) But it turned out to be a hungry leopard, that's the trouble. Unfortunately, the leopard (laughs) is quite... So we're now sort of in the end game. On the 10th of September... This is literally within a week of Black Wednesday. John Major, who's gone to Scotland to stay with the Queen at Balmoral, decides in one of his fits of political genius to give a speech in Glasgow where he basically responds to the increasing turbulence in the markets by saying to those traders, do your worst. I was under no illusions when I took Britain into the exchange rate mechanism. I said at the time that membership was no soft option The soft option, the devaluer's option, the inflationary option, in my judgment, that would be a betrayal of our future at this moment. And I tell you categorically, that is not the government's policy. I just want to pause for a second. John Major, I mean, he amazingly is the one who doesn't get kiboshed by this policy. But you have to ask yourself, here we are, you're in the middle of a fully-fledged sterling crisis. His own chancellor has been coming and yanking at his sleeve all summer, suggesting that they might need to change policy, you know, back to our runaway locomotives and looming buffers and frogs in boiling water. Yet here he is, he's still making these ever madder speeches saying, I'm basically never going to change, doesn't matter what you do. Do you think he's just totally delusional? 
I think he just believed it and was not prepared to consider anything else. And he believed that he could, by sheer force of oratory, something for which he was not particularly well-renowned, actually hold up the tides. So he's King Canute, basically. Well, no, King Canute knew no, no, what King he was Canute doing. King Canute was the same one. Yeah, King Canute knew it wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And he thought he could actually hold up the tide. And having been... Chancellor, you would have thought that he would have some understanding of how markets worked and the power that they exercise in an open economy. I think it's a very, very central political skill to be able to see when the game is up and when you basically need to change tack rather than pouring your troops into a kind of losing situation. The more I look at this, the more I think Major completely fails that test here. I don't think and, there's any question that he, he is, failed, but, surely. Well, no, no. Well, I, I, aside from, I'm talking about in character terms. I think he shows himself to be a weak and inflexible politician. He's not reading the room, as people would say these days. Anyway, so the following day, after the speech that John Major gives, is the Friday the 11th of September, and the markets turn up the heat further, the lira slumps, and the Bank of Italy has to intervene. Now, the interesting thing here is under the rules of the ERM, the Bundesbank has to join in. It has to defend a fellow currency. But at the end of the day, on the Friday, Schlesinger just concludes a complete waste of money and says to the Italians, I'm not going to throw away any more German taxpayers' money. You're on your own. So Italy is basically totally screwed at this point, And they realise that they've got to devalue. Also, logically, as we know, once the lira is out of the way and the speculators and the traders have made their profits on the devalued lira, they're going to be rubbing their hands and looking where to go next. And, of course, the market in sterling was much bigger than that in yep. the lira. Yep. So the opportunity of making money is almost an order of magnitude greater. So over the weekend, actually, the Germans finally do realise that they have to offer something. They can't just basically watch the ERM collapse without making some sort of concession. So the German government sits down with the Bundesbank and they hash out uh, deal And the deal is, which they offer both the Italians and the Brits, is they say, we'll cut interest rates if you agree to devalue inside the ERM. And the Italians take the deal. They say, thanks very much. We'll devalue on Monday morning. And the British, once again, this is major. This is entirely major. Basically say, no way. We're going to tough it out. What, yeah. do we, what do you make of that? I just think I, this is going into, off the I'm scale afraid that I'm afraid that there is no defence <laughs> for this. You know, you cannot defy reality indefinitely. Right. And reality is now knocking at the door. So on the 14th of September, which is the Monday, the Italians open the day by devaluing by 7% and the Germans cut interest rates but only by a measly quarter of a percentage well, That'll point. make all the difference, a quarter percent. <laughs> so which know. is the worst possible situation, because basically it's basically game over. Anyway, and they all start selling the pound. At this point, the kind of crisis becomes fairly surreal. It's that sort of sense that all of a sudden there's nobody really at home and everything is falling apart, but no one is in, in charge anymore. This becomes a very recurring theme through the rest of Black Wednesday. This idea that, events, these enormous events are happening and nobody kind of is at home to answer the telephone. But basically, the first very surreal thing that happens is it's the day before Black Wednesday. The Italians are devalued. The pound is being punished in the exchange markets. And the one thing which is absolutely vital 
is that the Germans don't do anything to upset the apple cart and Schlesinger has to keep his mouth shut. But for some reason, best known to himself, he decides on that day to give an interview to a journalist at Handelsblatt called Werner Benkhoff, who here steps out of the shadows into the, into the spotlight for his one and only time in his career, I think. <laughs> and he asks Schlesinger in this interview about Italy. And Schlesinger, kind of in a Tourette's moment, he volunteers that the realignment of the ERM, he uses that word, hasn't gone far enough. And the obvious implication of this is <laughs> that he, the British should have devalued the pound. It's but hardly an implication, it's an invitation. <laughs> So Benkhoff then obviously writes it up and goes back to the Bundesbank for comment and the Bundesbank try to walk back what Schlesinger has said. And Schlesinger's thing is, I said it all off the record. And Benkhoff says, but I've got the tapes. (laughs) (laughs) So this is sort of turning into a total kind of carry-on situation. Anyway, in the afternoon, the story starts to filter back through the wires to London and... Paul Tucker is asked to call up Helmut Schlesinger and ask him to correct the record because the British rightly see this as a total disaster. If this story comes out and is not denied, basically they're screwed. And this is what Tucker says about his attempt to... He has to call him up because the governor of the Bank of England is too busy to speak to Schlesinger. I can't remember exactly what terms, but, you know, in careful terms, agreed with the government and the governor. And Schlesinger's response was along the lines, and I may be getting this exactly right, well, you're asking me to to kind of correct the statement that's out on Reuters, and I I don't know how to do that. I thought this was an episode, if I may offer a a kind of personal view, and I think this is a a period that reflects incredibly poorly on Helmut Schlesinger as a man. What he could have said, and I think a much better thing to say was, well, Paul or Mr Tucker, can you relay to Robin, your governor, that I'm just not prepared to do that because give a reason. What you can see from this is Schlesinger is, I think Schlesinger is basically just clearly bored of being told what to do by people in London. I'm not sure bored is the word. Irritated. Yes, (laughs) exasperated. (laughs) Exasperated. So basically the upshot, of course, is that the record is not corrected. And in later life, Schlesinger seems seems to say, looking at what he said afterwards, that he decided that he couldn't deny it because he'd actually said it. He could say it was off the record, but he couldn't. He wasn't willing to say that he hadn't said what he'd said. So he's actually quite an honourable man, really. <laughs> yeah, well. If an unhelpful one. <laughs> and the story is then published the next day, and the next day is Black Wednesday. Of course, the famous person who breaks the Bank of England on Black Wednesday is George Soros. George Soros, Soros, yes. And it's still a bit of a mystery how much money he really makes. He claims that he had a position of $10 billion and because Sterling fell 10%, he made about a billion. A lot of people joined joined in the fund here. And actually, as far as the UK is concerned, it was the biggest single transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector in a single day, yep. which we would ever see, yep. because lots of people were were joining in. It wasn't just a few well-heeled speculators. Yep. Indeed, it was dramatic increase in private sector wealth. And I think I think you can see that because the previous day in the evening, when the Handelsblatt story is sort of swimming around in an alarming way. 
the Treasury and the Bank of England sit down and say, well, we really ought to prepare to have a sort of fighting fund to intervene if Mm. basically the shit hits the fan tomorrow morning. The number they come up with to earmark for this fighting fund is a billion pounds. And on Black Wednesday... They run through their billion pounds in about half an hour. To be fair, it was seemed um, quite a large sum yeah, at the time. And they end up spending sixteen billion defending the pound and losing well, people think about three to four, I think was the number that was was only released about five or six years after the event. Yeah, I mean obviously they only lost the difference between yeah. the rate at which they bought it and the rate at which they sold it. Yeah. Anyway, so they're intervening madly all morning and by lunchtime it's clear it's not gonna work. The bank basically say, Eddie George, who is in charge of the market, says to Norman Lamont, intervention isn't going to stop this. You need to raise interest rates if you've got any hope of holding the thing. The government decides finally, slightly belatedly, to raise interest rates by 2%, which it does at lunchtime or about half past 11 in the morning. And Major doesn't just do it with Norman Lamont. He calls in Three senior cabinet ministers who will be a feature of this whole story throughout the afternoon. Douglas Hurd, who's the foreign secretary. Michael Heseltine, who I think is the business secretary. And Ken Clark, who is home secretary. Basically, they're told broadly to dip their hands in the blood. And basically, they all agree we'll put up interest rates to 12% from 10%. So politically, that was quite an astute thing for Major to do. I mean, I probably didn't feel he had much choice but it was quite clear what was happening. And if he and Lamont took responsibility for it on their own, I would think he would have been out within weeks. Yes, so he's. I think you're absolutely right. I think at this stage, Major is now, he's realised his policy has gone up in smoke and he's all about how do I save myself from being the guy who made this mess and single-handedly? And single-handedly. So yeah. it's all, yeah. all of a sudden, multiple hands are being called. But it's interesting also why Heseltine and Clark and Hurd are so enthusiastic about going down with the ship. They raise interest rates and it's basically still not working. And I think we talked to Paul Tucker about the Bank of England. It's about now, I think, that they decide this is really a failed experiment. The markets aren't going to buy any interest rate rises. And this is what he says about this point in the day. It was quite tense. By far the most important thing that day, other than the kind of tactical iterations, was that at some point in the day, Eddie said, this isn't going to work and it needs to be stopped now. We need to pull out now. My perception was that he remained upset about this for a long time and felt that the country had wasted money. But Major, despite all of this going on and the bank losing confidence, Major still doesn't get it. And around 2.30, there's a further interest rate rise to 15%. So they've now gone up five percentage points in a day. And basically, the pound does a little kind of tiny twitch and then falls right back to the floor of the ERM. Well, through the floor, I through think. The floor. Well, no, I think they... it's still at the floor at this point because they're still buying they're everything up buy everything. At, the, at the bottom of the... But so one question which comes up here is, would anything have worked at this stage? And we asked Paul Tucker that, and this was his theory about the fact that the only thing that would might have worked at this juncture was a sudden kind of dawn raid on the <laughs> speculators and raising interest rates to crazy level and starving them out. So this is what he had to say. What you do if you want to break speculator is you raise your interest rate absolutely in one step and without notice to 100%. And if that's not enough, you raise it to 200%. Because they're shorting your currency and they've got to borrow it 
to deliver into their short position. They've got transactions. And so you want, you want to make them have to pay an awful lot of money to borrow the currency. They're borrowing your currency in order to sell it outright. And you need to make the first part of that transaction cost them so much money that they're not going to be in net profit when they sold it. This is textbook stuff. What do you make of that? Do you think that would have ever worked? Would anyone uh, have ever I think it might have that? bought a day or two. Okay. But I mean, it, was, it would have been so absurd that the idea that 100% interest rates could 200%. be... 200%? Well, okay, whatever. Um, could be sustained within yeah. the economy, you know, if it filtered into the economy rather than just into the, the markets of the day, it would have been absolutely catastrophic yeah. because it would have essentially meant that yeah. you couldn't borrow. Yeah, really. so you're, ba- you're gambling that you're bankrupting the speculators before they yeah. bankrupt the economy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it would only work if the speculative attack had not been justified and there was some extraneous reason for it happening in the first place. It might work. If it actually reflects the reality in the marketplace, then all you can do is buy a little bit of time at a huge cost. I think that's right. I think it's game over and I don't see any merit at that point in doing. But we now come, so we're now mid-afternoon, come to the second kind of really surreal moment in this crisis where there's a sense that there's nobody at home. So Major is not actually in number 10 at this point. John Major has moved out of number 10 because it's been rocketed by the IRA a few months before in a kind of sneak attack. And he is living in Admiralty House. And from contemporaneous accounts... He's sort of almost sort of, you know, living in a kind of kind of living out of a suitcase and there isn't much there. So they so weirdly, all these senior cabinet ministers are sitting in the middle of this massive market crisis where their government is basically sinking by the hour and they're totally cut off from what's going on in, around them. They don't have any information. So Ken Clark, who's one of the ministers there, says at one point, you know, we suddenly realise we don't know what's going on. So they start hunting around Admiralty House for a transistor radio so they can listen to the news to find out what's going on in the real world. But in the late afternoon, they finally decide, I think, that the game is pretty much up. And Lamont, is, at this point, is very clearly saying we must devalue, probably leave, suspend our membership of the ERM. Suspend, I think, was so the word he used, yeah, yes, before so, we completely run out of reserves. Exactly. So we can basically let the pan fall. But they don't know how to announce it. There's a kind of debate because there's this weird committee, the monetary committee in Brussels, that they have to notify and they have to tell them they're leaving and agree. And they can't summon this committee for hours. So they kind of get into a terrible tears. We can't announce we're leaving because then we'll be asked questions and we haven't left. So in the end, they kind of do nothing. And after about four o'clock, they stop buying sterling, but they just don't tell the markets that they've given up so and they've left the ERM but effectively pres- they have because they're no presum- longer defending the pound but presumably they had somehow told the bank to stop buying yes so the bank stops buying at about four under instruction from, under instruction from the government it's just, or from the chancellor yeah, just the chancellor says it, but they feel they can't announce it as if the world hasn't sort of figured out what's going on because they have to tell the monetary bureaucrats in brussels first and they say, oh, well, let's get the chairman of the Conservative Party, Norman Fowler, to go on the six o'clock news and just say he'd heard that something was up, but he couldn't really tell them anymore at this stage. And finally, of course, they realise 
actually, this is total madness. We've got to say something. So they duly send out Norman Lamont for his famous statement on the steps Today outside the Treasury, where there's a very famous day. photograph of him Massive sort of standing there. And if you look closely, somebody has very thoughtfully covered up the drain hole mechanism. cover just in front of him with, with a file the on the ground. They knew that the, the camera the cameraman would, <laughs> would take pictures and everyone would say, Lamont <laughs> going down the drain. I think that man should have been promoted. Who was it? Was, it? I think it was, he was called David Cameron. Ah, oh, well, there we are. There he we got are. his In desserts. and all the great events. <laughs> <laughs> and so the day ends in utter chaos. I, I think we can both agree that, you know, it's impossible to look at what happened on Black Wednesday and not feel that the public is left with a spectacle of incredible chaos. It's not yeah. just that this policy has failed. It's basically that it's just ended in the comic. They had no idea what they were doing. So that really brings us to the end of Black Wednesday, the events of the day. Where we are now is Britain's out of the ERM, but we've suspended our membership. We've not critically decided to leave. And the public doesn't really know whether that departure is permanent or temporary. The pound has dropped way below its floor within the ERM of about 277 and has settled around I don't know, 250, which is it's a big devaluation, although it corrects a bit subsequently. The second interest rate rise is cancelled but rates are still two percentage points higher than they were the day before, which is a bit of a shock if you have a mortgage. And the cabinet has given an indelible sense that it's run by a bunch of headless chickens. And yeah. <laughs> so it's not they, a good situation, I no, think we could say. I think they uh, they got their just desserts in the press the next day. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> as we struggled to continue to rewrite the story as the day went by. Anyway, so we'll we'll come back with the sum up the aftermath and what it really meant. But it's worth just saying the following day, a journalist, a Financial Times journalist, Philip Stevens, who's a political correspondent of the FT in those days, goes round to see Norman Lamont at the Treasury. He's rather surprised to be invited to come round. He phones up and says, can I come? And Norman Lamont says, fine. And he asks Norman Lamont, you know, what do you feel about this terrible calamity that has just taken place? Norman Lamont rather surprised him by saying, I haven't slept better in months. And he says, it's the first time I've been able to stop worrying about the value of the pound. <laughs> Which, of course, is in a way he become, to become his political epitaph. Yeah. But Lamont went to see Max Hastings, who was then editor of The Telegraph, and he explained what, what was happening. And Max said to him, who's going to be chancellor in this new regime? And Lamont puffed himself up and said, well, of course I am. I am the chancellor. Mm. And Max said to him, well, you're a bloody fool. If you resign now, you'll be back in the cabinet in six months' time. If you hang on, you'll be out. Mm. And he said, Max says in his book... We've never exchanged a civil word since. It sounds as if he wasn't exchanging much of a civil word then. But anyway, (laughs) next time we'll be back to look at the aftermath of Black Wednesday. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week.